Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. off a series on delighting in the Lord, and so hopefully uh, that opened up some things for you about what delighting in the Lord really is, the value, that that's our power source as followers of Jesus, that we get to delight in the Lord, and, uh, and so coming off of that, um, uh, I was just kind of thinking early on in my walk with the Lord. Uh, it was 1996, and uh, I was trying to just Follow Jesus, and I had given my heart to him over this summer in between my freshman and sophomore year in college, and I came back, and, and I really wanted to grow. I, I, I had kind of played religious games my whole life, and uh, I came to a place in my life where I was done with the game playing, and I really wanted the real thing. And, um, and so uh, a friend of mine helped uh, influence me towards Jesus, and, um, and so I get back, and I'm in my sophomore year, and I'm learning how to grow. And I'm, I'm, trying, I'm reading the Bible almost every day, and, um, and there is, there's, it's just learning how to be intimate with God is an interesting thing, because a lot of times we'll connect with God when we're with other people, or like, like on a Sunday, you know, we'll come and we'll encounter God or experience God in a particular way. Um, but it, it, everything kind of changes when all that's gone, all that noise and pomp is kind of gone, and it just ends up being you and the Lord, and learning how to actually have a dialogue conversation with God. It's, it's rather new. You know, we, we've never really done that before following Jesus, but now that we're learning how to follow Jesus, Jesus had a, uh, it seemed like a continual dialogue with his Father, and if we're followers of Jesus, then that should be an expectation on your and I's life that we are having an ongoing dialogue, connection, communion with the God who created us. That should be the expectation as a follower of Jesus. And so how do we learn to talk to God? How do we, how do we learn the language or, or how do we express ourselves in such a way that we are connecting to God. Sometimes we, we pick it up by watching other people. We see other people pray. Or we see other people kind of connect, and, and we think, well, oh, that's, that's, that's a good way, man. He really leaned into that. He got his eyes super closed. You know, not just praying, not just this, but this. Like, that was, there was an extra little grace when he went on that, like something happened. Maybe that's it. Maybe if I just squeeze my eyes extra tight, then God will really come through for me, but a lot of times we'll look at other people praying and we think that it's the form. But it has nothing to do with that. So when I started reading through and meditating on a particular point, point, point of Scripture in the Psalms, the Psalms, when I started reading the Psalms, it seemed like, every, it seemed like my relationship with God changed because Psalms was giving me language for emotion. God, the Psalms was giving me language of, of praying to God, and, um, and the whole purpose of this book of Psalms is that for 2,500 years, it has been teaching God's people the language of prayer. This language 
of fear, language of lament or grief, language of praise and joy, and language of confession and coming to the end of ourselves. And I believe that God is inviting us here for at least for the next month or so, about four weeks, we're going to dive into the book of Psalms. And we're going to cover it in four weeks. So obviously we're not covering 150 Psalms uh, in four weeks. But we're going to look at different ways that the Psalms present to us communicating with God. Now, some of us uh, grew up in settings where when it comes to like emotions, we either find ourselves in one or two camps in the setting that you probably grew up in. Uh, some people handle emotions by what? Shoving them down. These are the quieter families. These are, we don't really talk about our feelings. We just kind of shove it down and then we just pretend everything's great. And then all of a sudden, how come dad just blew up? It's like, well, it's because for years he's been shoving down what he actually thinks about you. And now it came out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So we can kind of shove, we can shove our emotions down, or we, we may have grown up in a family where emotions, instead of hiding from them, they are the centerpiece of the family. And this is, this is the loud, this is, I'm going to tell you at all times what's going on, but a lot of times we can, those, those type of families can be dictated by emotions. So we've got one side where we don't like to deal with emotions, other where emotions are the centerpiece And so we run, when we run into problems, when we run into uh, missed expectations or difficulties or storms in life, what do we do with those emotions? Do we shove them down with relation to God? Do we shove them down and just, you know, grin, just, just white knuckle it and just keep pressing on? Or do we allow uh, our emotions to dictate how we see God and ourselves and our circumstances and everything's off the rails and my emotion becomes my lens through which I see everything. But the Psalms do neither of those two things. The Psalms allow room for emotions to be expressed and clearly communicated to God, but at the same time, we're not allowing our emotions to dictate but Psalms are going to teach us how to pray through things. So praying through fear, which is what we're going to talk about today. Praying through pain. Praying through your sin, confession. There's, there's, there's these things that we can kind of pick up from the book of Psalms that not only give us the language of prayer, but give us actually a pathway forward to actually take our own fears, our own pains, our own praises and joys to the Lord and learn how to talk and relate to this living God. Come on. So over the next few weeks, again, we're gonna highlight different prayers that are generated out of very different emotional experiences and seasons of life here in the Psalms. And there's every type of experience in prayer you can imagine in this collection of 150 songs, psalms, so this morning, we're going to explore just one psalm today, and that's Psalm 3. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 3. 
It's eight verses. It's real short, but we're going we're gonna to unpack these eight verses uh, this morning. So, um, so my opening question before we dive into the text, what does it mean to pray through our fears? What does it mean to pray through our fears? Fear is a primal human emotion. Arguably, we experience fear from our first breath. This is a brand new environment and I'm scared. Ah! You know, like, yeah, that's how, that, that's how birth is. But fear, no, it's very much not like that. It's so funny watching, side note, when it's so funny watching birthing uh, scenes on TV or movies and Becky always says, no, nah, it's, it's way more painful than that. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, part of following and knowing him is cultivating a personal connection to him and learning the language of prayer. We have to learn how to pray through our fears, not deny them and stuff them, because that'll destroy you, and at the same time, not giving in to them and letting them take over your life, because that'll destroy you in different ways. We have to learn how to face them and pray through them. And it's precisely what David is doing in Psalm 3. So, Psalm 3 says Psalm 3. Do you guys have a title there right above there? Uh, in, in my book, in the uh, English Standard Version, it says, Save Me, Oh My God. That's, like, that's a great title. There's no wasted word in that title. Save Me, Oh My God. I guess you could, oh, oh is maybe, you know, you could vote that out, but Save Me, Oh my God, so something's happening. Something happened in David's life. And, and it says even a note, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, so there's a little story behind this psalm. There's about, there's about 70 prayers or psalms connected to David in the psalms. Of 150, 70 of them are David, and there's about a dozen of them of those 70 that have little notes like that before you actually get to the psalm. So it gives you a little background to the story to say, okay, what's, what's going on? And, and you can find the background to the story in 2 Samuel 15 and on uh, of what's going on in David's life. Uh, so let me give you a little, little update as to like where are we at with David. David's been king now for 31 years. 31 years he's been king. Three decades. He had a poetic start to his life. You can read all about it in First and Second Samuel. It's a, that's David's whole story. Uh, kind of a golden boy, golden child growing up. Uh, he slays Goliath. He later becomes, he honors Saul, the king before him, in, in an uh, obnoxious way, like it was above and beyond. He kept honoring Saul, even though Saul wanted to kill him. And then he finally becomes king, and he establishes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and uh, he's, everything's going great. Everything going, is going great in David's kingdom. But yet there was a, a key moment where everything changed for David. And it was 31 years into being king. Actually, no. I back that up. It was about 10 years as he being king. And, um, and he, it says when kings go out, went out to war, David stayed home. So at the time where he needed to be out on the front lines helping his kingdom grow, uh, he stays home, stays home and 
probably familiar with the story, but he ends up having an affair. He's married. He ends up having an affair with a different woman who was married, and um, they have an affair, and he ends up killing her husband. I mean, it just, just to cover up his sin. And from that point on, almost everything in David's life begins falling apart. His family begins falling apart. Um, now, Nathan, the prophet, had kind of rebuked uh, David for trying to get away with this, and he repents, which is, we may get into that the third week, what that prayer was. But um, where was I going? Uh, but his family begins falling apart. His kids, one kid kills another because one raped another. I mean, it just like it, his life begins falling apart. There's a three year famine in the land. His kingdom is in disarray, and so what Absalom, his son, and his enemies are capitalizing on the fact that David looks like the sun has set on David's grace and anointing on his life. And so he amasses, Absalom amasses an army, a resistance army, against his own father. David has to flee his own house and city that he established as a capital. He's running into the hills with only a few hundred people, and we are told there's an army of 12,000 people chasing him. So David, who's the rightful king, he's only got a couple hundred, and there's 12,000 people chasing him into the hills, running out of Jerusalem. It's crazy. So super bad day for David, okay? Can we all agree with that? (laughs) Super bad day. His own son creates a success, arguably successful coup on his own kingdom. What is going on? You could just imagine the fear and the unknown of what David's experiencing by having his own son come up with a pretty successful, it took about four years for him to assemble this amount of people, but through his propaganda and through you know, what he was saying in the town, it was amassing favor behind Absalom. So Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Now that that phrase, Selah, theologians kind of argue about exactly what this means. It could be a, a, a term for music to just basically like an interlude or a pause. So in general, it's pause here. Think about what was just said. So it's clear, clearly how he begins the poem. He's praying through his fear by first identifying the source of his fear. Now again, this is going to be a model for us how to pray through our fears. David's first number one thing that he does is he identifies what's making him afraid. Clearly to God. He clearly communicates that to God. And a lot of times it's interesting, we think, well, God knows, right? But there is something, I mean, just think about with, between a married couple, right? I'm with this woman every day, right? I kind of know in general what's going on in her life. But there's a value that when she gets done with the day, that I give her time for her to express, hey, what happened today? I know a lot about her, but there's something that is healing in Becky's heart, that she gets to fully express what's really going on. Now, I know most of the story, right? I already, 
but there's a, there's, there's, there's a healing process that human beings need to be able to express. So, the first thing he does is bring his fear to God's attention. Hey God, I'm over here. Do you know what's happening in my life? Do you know what's going on here? Oh God, how many are my foes? Do you not see them? Now just look at the repeated words here. He, what's freaking him out the most right now? What does he say three times over? Many. Many. There's many people. This is a big problem coming at me. Okay? 12,000 soldiers on my heels, God. Clearly he's identifying the source of his fears. Again, this is a model. He identifies the source of what's wrong. Where's my fear coming from? Oh, the 12,000 soldiers, you know, being, you know, marched at me and I only got a couple hundred. Didn't expect that to happen today. Uh, they want to kill me. It's a pretty good reason to be afraid. But there's another level to David's fear here. There's another layer. Obviously, there's a clear threat of 12,000. But there's another layer to his fear, and it's in what they're saying about him. It's in their propaganda. And what, what are they saying about him? Absalom's army is spreading rumors about David, and they're, they're saying that God is finished with David. God is through with David. There is no more favor or salvation for David because what he did. And this is a very different kind of attack than just soldiers coming in. This is not just a physical attack on this life, it's an attack on David's identity and on David's sense of his very self and significance and his status. So he explains or shares the source of his fear. And then he goes on, it says, Psalm 3, verse 3, it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. So, another time to pause here. What is this? What is this? Something clearly shifted from, his, from the first part of where he's, uh, he's expressing to God the, the depths of his fear of what's coming at him, and then he moves on. Something shifts, and he takes his eyes off of his circumstances, and he turns his eyes onto God and his character and who he is. It's a huge shift, and it's a huge part of praying through your, pra- praying through your fear. Now, fear can come from all over, but usually it's running quietly in the background of most of our lives, trying to pin us in, trying to define us, trying to keep us in a rut. So, but you, O oh God, are a shield about me. You can see the tone. Something profound took place inside of the fear, this very fearful, anxious man. And it's because he moved his attention. Now, it's interesting. He uses kind of three metaphors and uh, in this kind of one sentence. And it's interesting. In Psalms, there's a lot of metaphors. There's a lot of imagery happening in the Psalms. And uh, because it's religious language or we feel like it's religious, oh, it's just the Bible, we just kind of just read right over it. And we never really get the value or the depth of the metaphors that he's specifically referencing. So here, the first one, he says that you're a shield 
about me or a shield, another translation, a shield around me. Now imagine that. God being a shield to you. His presence bringing a shield that covers or surrounds your life. What does a shield do? It's, it's for protection. It's to keep bad things from happening, and it protects the very the most important, depending on what shield, but any shield is big enough, should be, to protect the most important vital parts of who you are. That's what a shield's for, is to protect those vital parts of your life. So David knows things are probably going to most likely get worse before they get better. <laughs> Obviously, he's got, a, he's got this 12,000-person problem to kind of deal with. You know, things are probably going to get worse before they get better. And in the midst of it, in the midst of it, I mean, we just sang it this morning, even when I don't see that you're working, even though I don't feel that you're working, David takes this, and he is declaring that God is going to protect him. Wow. Sometimes God's re- God rescues his people out of very difficult situations, and sometimes he doesn't. And so if, you're, if you begin following God so that you would have a bumpless life, then that's not the God of the Bible. There's a lot of things in life that will come your way where you'll be able to take up the offense that I'm mad at God, I'm, I don't understand, God's abandoned me, God's, God's left me. And it's a lot of times it's exposing, well, maybe the God that you were depending upon didn't ever exist in the first place. Maybe that there's a God that's more committed to your growth than you thought there was a God committed to your growth. Maybe he isn't just about you accepting certain concepts about who Jesus is, but maybe he's actually really wanting transformation in your heart that changes who you are. And so this is very powerful. What he says, whatever happens, the Lord is a shield protecting the most vital part of who I am. And what is the most vital part of who he is that needs protecting? That's the next two metaphors. He's very powerful. He says, you are a shield and you are my glory. You are my shield and you are my glory. Now, what does that mean? Why would he, in praying through his fears, why would he declare that you are my glory? Now, that word glory, uh, you may hear it often, or if you grew up in church, you probably heard it, uh, but we've kind of lost connection to what it actually really means this word glory it's kind of it's kind of like that word love you know it's just just kind of like it's it's a little amorphous at times what does that mean glory it might trip us up but um it means uh the the hebrew word is kavod okay so the hebrew name for glory is kavod and it means um it means heaviness or weightiness There's something heavy. I mean, they even make reference in Judges that one king was so obese, he was very kavod. I mean, he was like a weighty person. But with regards to like God and his glory, kavod's an importance of status and significance. And to say that God has glory or to glorify God or to give him glory means that when we all get together, we collectively say out loud, God, you are the most important and significant thing in my life. 
That's what giving God glory. God, you are the most important. You are the most significant. And what's interesting is the Bible affirms that God gives humans glory as well. And, there's, and, and it makes reference at the end of 2 Samuel. It references David specifically having kavod. But it's this, it's, your kavod is about your sense of significance and importance. It's about whatever it is in your status and position that gives you significance and importance. So David, obviously, from the rags to riches story, what defined him is who he was. He was the poor, no-name shepherd boy who became king. And now, all of a sudden, he doesn't have that sense of glory anymore. His kingdom is being shattered right before his eyes. Everything that he worked for, his family, all these failures on the pursuant of these 12,000 soldiers, David's, I believe, recognizing in this moment that he has misplaced his glory. Any illusion that he was a success is shattered. He's completely fallen apart. He's not a good father. Again, crazy stories there. He, he was a successful nation builder, yeah, but not much anymore. He's staying home. He's not growing his kingdom. He's a powerful king, but not anymore per se. You might say, well, at least he has his moral integrity. Well, no, he's, he's lost that. And so David comes at this low point in his life and says in a new way, you, Lord, are my glory. You are the thing that gives me significance, importance, status, purpose, meaning. Something else had been his kavod, his wealth, his power, his influence, his significance. He had his own glory, his role as king and father, and he squandered it. And it leads to a wrecked life that did not give him the glory that he was made to experience as a creature made in God's image. You were made to experience glory. But it's that you get your glory by nothing else other than God himself. No amount of wealth, status, position. And a lot of times we put our own glory into those things. But when those things begin falling apart before us, where do we go? And David's recognizing that he's been putting his glory in his own life and not in God's. And so here's this beautiful moment. You are a shield about me. You are my glory. so good (laughs) who is he if he's not king right you know who is he if he's not king who am i who am i if i'm not employee spouse father who am i he recognizing that god is going to protect the most vital thing about him and after all that stripped away he is left to say lord you are the only thing that's important and significant about me what a powerful confession that david is making in this song And then he goes on, he says, you're the lifter of my head. Last metaphor, you're the lifter of my head. What does that mean? It says, out of this declaration of glory to God alone, God restores his confidence. 
Because why? His confidence was in his own glory, and he's come to the end of that. That didn't, that blew up in his face. David's like, I don't have any reason to be confident in myself anymore. There's, there's so much freedom on the other end of you being able to say that from your heart. I don't have much confidence in myself anymore. I'm putting my confidence on God alone. So you're the lifter of my head. His successes and failures have no bearing on who he is in this moment. He's the lifter of his head. God's, his confidence is reestablished. And he says, you are my glory and you hold my head up high. And he goes, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. So let me see if I can kind of So he's making reference. He says, I, got, I was answered from God on the holy hill, or holy mountain might be your translation. And what's in that reference to? That's in reference to Jerusalem, the city that he helped establish, and specifically the temple that's at the top of the hill that everyone can see. So he's referencing, he goes, I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his Holy Hill, his temple, where he is. Now, what happens in the temple? Happy morning. What happens in the temple in the Old Testament? There's sacrifices, right? They're sacrificing continually for the sins of the nation. And so he's like, God, I cried out to you, and I look to the place that where I know my confidence is. Because the sacrifices are being made for my sin, I can know with sure confidence that God is going to be my shield. He's going to be my glory. He's going to be the lifter of my head. And I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from that place. The death that substitute, that substitute sacrifice covers, it covers over the failure of the sin of the one who's praying, and, he, and he's looking towards God at the temple. And so that's precisely what could possibly give a man like David who squandered everything God gave him in confidence. He's looking toward the substitute that covered over his sin and gives him confidence that Yahweh is for him and he's forgiving him. Man. It's interesting that a thousand years before Jesus, he's approaching God in the same way a follower of Jesus would. He knows that because of this sacrifice, he can approach God with full confidence, knowing that God is going to answer his prayer. So here's the resolve to this psalm. We'll land this pretty fast, so strap up. Uh, verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. Wow. After, he be after he's able to pray through his fear, identify it, Fix his attention on God, on who he is in light of that fear. He confesses that he's now able to sleep through the night. That's amazing. Because I lay down and I slept. He, he can get a good night's sleep because I, he's identified, like I said, he's identified the source of his fear. He's aligned his priorities. Again, he's looked to the substitute that's done for him. He couldn't do for himself. And now he knows he rests in God's mercy and grace. So he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me all around. 
Wow, in just like four sentences, he's able to process through this fear that led off saying, oh my God, all these people, these many people are coming after me. And now he's able to say, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves up against me or around me. It's amazing. It's amazing transformation in just those four little sentences. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. I love David's, it's like, mm, probably David, come on now. Don't be saying that. But he's expressing like God is going after my enemies. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. David got to the source of his fear by going to the source that is near. Ooh. Everything changed for David after that point in his life. A kingdom in chaos, in this moment, David, ha- David goes back, he defeats Absalom, he squashes that whole resistance movement, he becomes he's, he's st- king for another almost decade, nine more years, and he goes off on an upstroke. He ends well. David's life has ended well, and there's peace in his kingdom. It's amazing. From this one psalm, how he was able to process through his fear and replay and recognize that his cavoter's glory was in himself and not in God, everything in his life changed from this point on. So Jesus, we just thank you for our lives. And God, I pray that you'd give us space and language. This week, God, if there's fear that's attacking our life, no matter what its source, Father, I pray that you would give us the permission to freely express to you our pain, our fear, our doubt, our concern, (laughs) our confusion. God, you're able to just be a God that can take all that, listen to us, and God, be the God that we need in those moments. And so, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, if there's any of us, God, just captivated by any fear, God, that this week that you would give us language and a boldness to approach you with that fear. And that, God, that we could process through and look to you to see, God, who are you in light of this fear? That you are a king above all kings. That you are a ruler unlike any other ruler. And that you're a God that's unlike any other God. So, Lord, we thank you that we get to be in the privilege of your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.